Hello and welcome to The Premise. Bienvenidos, mi amigos. I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And this is, what, season three? Season three. Wow. We are in season three of getting to the story behind the storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what we do here on The Premise. So sit back, relax. Listen. Listen to your eight tracks. I dig you like an old soul record. <laughs> Enjoy a cup of tea, a glass of wine, a shot, you know, whatever. And you do you. You do you. We'll do us. No judgment here. We'll do us. Mona, it's so good to see you. I love your work. I love this book. It's wonderful. Congratulations it's on all of its success. <laughs> so I'm going to read your bio and then okay. we'll have you read a little bit if you'd like. Yeah, Would you sure. like to do? Perfect. And then we'll dive in. Okay. That sounds perfect. Mona Awad is the author of Bunny, named a best book of 2019 by Time, Vogue, and the New York Public Library. It was a finalist for the New England Book Award and a Goodreads Choice Award. It is currently in development for film with Jenny Connor and New Regency Productions. Awad's first novel, 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and winner of the Colorado Book Award and the Amazon Canada First Novel Award. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Vogue, Time, McSweeney's, by the way, I read that article, your latest piece from 2020, and it was awesome. I would highly recommend people go read that piece. Uh, Plowshares and elsewhere. She teaches fiction in the creative writing program at Syracuse, Syracuse University. Her new novel, All's Well, has been named a best or most anticipated book of summer by Entertainment Weekly, O Magazine, Goodreads, and many more. And it's a lovely book. I'm so excited to talk about it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, thank you so much, uh, Warwick's, for, for hosting us. Um, and so excited to be in conversation with you. And Warwick's is very near and dear to my heart because um, I actually wrote um, this book and my forthcoming book and edited um, Bunny too um, in La Jolla. So La Jolla is a very special place to me and Warwick's has always been um, really uh, wonderfully supportive. And of course I love Julie. So uh, just really yeah. happy, happy to be here. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read uh, from the very, very opening, just very, very brief little little taste um, just, to, just to kind of set the tone. And, um, and it's about um, a theater professor um, named Miranda Fitch. She works at a New England college um, and she is a director as well. And she is uh, suffering from chronic pain that no one believes she has. Um, and she's hell bent on staging this student production of Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well. Uh, but her students are mutinous um, and they want Macbeth. And tragedy and comedy both ensue. <laughs> um, so uh, <laughs> it's opening. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, this, in this opening scene, uh, she is um, in her office. She's just uh, about to go downstairs uh, to, to meet her mutinous students. And um, she's feeling all the feelings. I'm lying on the floor watching against my will, a bad actress in a drug commercial. Tell me about her fake pain. Just because my pain is invisible, she pleads to the camera, doesn't mean it isn't real. And then she attempts a face of what I presume to be her invisible suffering. 
Her brow furrows as though she's about to take a difficult shit or else have a furious but forgettable orgasm. Her mouth is a thin grimace. Her dim eyes attempt to accuse something vague in the distance, a god perhaps. Her bloodless complexion is convincing, though they probably achieved this with makeup and lighting. You can do a lot with makeup and lighting, I have learned. <laughs> now I watch her rub her shoulder where this invisible pain supposedly lives. Her face says that clearly her rubbing has done nothing. Her pain is still there, of course, deep, deep inside her. And then I am shown how deep. I am shown her supposed insides. A see-through human body appears on my laptop screen, showcasing a central nervous system that looks like a network of angry red webs. The webs blink on and off like Christmas lights, because the nerves are overactive, apparently. This is why she suffers so. Now the camera cuts back to the woman, gray-faced, hunched in the front yard of her suburban home. Her blonde children clamor around her like little jumping demons. <laughs> they are oblivious to her suffering, to the red webs of pain inside her. She looks imploringly at the camera, at me, really, for this is a targeted ad based on all of my web searches, based on my key words, the ones I typed into Google in the days when I was still diagnosing myself. She looks withered but desperate, pleading. She wants something from me. She is asking me to believe her about her pain. I don't, of course. I'll stop there. Mm, wow, you just brought me back in. I'm like, keep going. <laughs> um, those angry red webs, they appear throughout the book. And the callback was so brilliant, how you created, you've woven a story. Of course, that's what storytelling is. But then the visuals coming back again and again with that angry red web was so powerful. This book is about a lot of things. I call it a Macbeth adaptation. <laughs> that's great. I love that. I would say it's Kenneth Branagh meets David Lynch, if they were to have a book baby. <laughs> um, absolutely. What did you say? Oh, I said that's a great compliment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the David Lynch pieces for me, like that was like the best part, you know, we have the best of Shakespeare and then the best of this like creepy, but yet beautiful landscape that you've created with these characters and they're so rich and so deep and there's so much pain and you know, there's so much humor. Um, I want to talk about where the story came from. Like when did this, did it slowly percolate or was it like, oh, I have an idea. Tell us about the kernel. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I think it was, it was, it kind of came from two places and it did sort of slowly percolate. Um, really, uh, it was, partly inspired by my own experiences with chronic pain. I suffered from mm -hmm. pain for a number of years. I still deal with chronic pain even today. Um, and, uh, but at the time that I was, I was dealing with this, it was, uh, it was a, a few years ago now. Um, it, was, it was really, really um, kind of shaping my days. Um, uh, it wasn't a life-threatening thing, uh, of course, but um, at least in my case, but but it was still impacting my, my, my daily function, my ability to move, my ability to work, you know, socialize. Mm -hmm. I couldn't drive. I couldn't stand. I couldn't sit, you know, just one of those, you know, just, it was, I was an endless limbo um, in terms of yeah. what my options were for, um, for relief. 
Um, and so I was dealing with this. And at the time, I was also a graduate student. And um, I was a, a graduate student in creative writing and also in literary studies at the University of Denver. Um, and I took a Shakespeare class. And I just got so, it just, because of where I was in my life, I think, you know, um, I just, I got completely lost in, in the plays, just completely immersed myself in his Shakespeare's worlds. And mm. I just developed this really intense attachment <laughs> to all's well that ends well, which no one else likes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's just the way it goes. Uh, I just really loved this, this play. And I love this character. She was so polarizing the main character of this, of this comedy by Shakespeare. And, uh, and I started seeing parallels with Macbeth um, that mm. really excited me. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where it came from, I think. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, speaking of Helen, I mean, do you think that you wanted to write something, you know, a character like Helen, because she's so polarizing? Like, did, was that so exciting to you to create a character that for me as a reader, one minute I love her and the next minute I hate her? Right. Yes. And those are very Shakespearean actors in general. Right. Yeah. But do you think that's what sort of drew you into writing about this? Yeah, yeah, it really did. I mean, I just found her so fascinating. She is so polarizing. And in that way, she is very Shakespearean um, because mm -hmm. so many of Shakespeare's heroes and antiheroes have that kind of relationship with their audiences. You know, um, there are moments where you just feel profound disgust, you know, and, and yeah, uh, totally. And, and loathing <laughs> and, and, you know, and suddenly you're mm -hmm. really alienated from somebody that a moment ago you actually you loved. Yeah. You loved. And I love how, um, those, the characters in the plays are able to, to kind of, um, elicit that, that sort of response in an audience that is, you know, mm -hmm. very, very conflicted. I love characters yeah. inspire that. So, yeah, I think that's, that's really where it came from was just the, the kinds of emotions that this character inspired and that I thought were very, um, similar to, uh, emotions that you might feel about somebody like Macbeth or Lady Macbeth. Um, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. She's descending into madness, really. Yeah. I mean, we're watching her come together maybe to the world, but really she's unraveling. Yeah, no, she totally is. Um, and you know, that again, that's like a very, to kind of have her, um, able to connect with the reader at the same time. I just mm -hmm. really, really leaned into the fact that she was a performer who, you know, mm -hmm. no longer mm -hmm. has the stage. And so, you know, her, her, her uh, story is really being addressed in my head. I always imagined her sort of addressing it to this invisible audience, you know, mm. uh, nobody else is listening. So she's as this, you know, former performer who is now, you know, injured and can't, can't be on stage and isn't really being listened to or even seen. Yeah. Um, her story that she can share um, is all that she's got. And so, um, so yeah, that's, I did, I really imagined an invisible audience that she was speaking to who would sympathize when she felt, you know, yeah, <laughs> like oppressed and, you know, who would, who would root for her. But then of course, I, th I think the reader is encouraged in this book, at least I hope to, to kind of feel conflicted about Miranda for sure. 
Well, we're starting to realize like, oh, she's so delusional, you know, oh, yeah. like these she she makes excuses for her behavior and justifies things that she's doing because, well, because of this and this. And then as the reader, we start to see her slowly slip away from any moral compass that she might have had in the beginning because right. it's, it's justifying everything. Um, and speaking of the invisible audience, in the yeah. end, toward toward the end, and I won't give anything away to our readers and listeners, but there is this thing that you did, and I don't know if you did it on purpose, but the audience laughs at all the inappropriate times. And it sort of reminded me of and made me wonder, was this a commentary on how we treat women and how we treat the invisible illness? Because when you have chronic pain that, you know, it's not a broken arm, you can't point to it and say, oh, her arm's broken. You know, was that scene intended to create that sort of feeling of being laughed at and not being believed in all the, the wrong moments? Like the, the audience is evil, really. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, they're, they're very evil. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, part of what really inspired uh, this book was sort of looking around, you know, when I when I was dealing with pain and was, you know, trying to find relief, trying to find somebody who could help me. Um, and just really having my, uh, my experience kind of dismissed or diminished or you know, just like mm -hmm. band-aids, you know, in the form of just pills or whatever. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, it, it really felt like I, I wasn't really being believed or, or being taken seriously. And, and it is hard with pain. It's so hard with pain because it is invisible and you do have to rely on the person experiencing it to communicate it. So, you know, I had to rely on myself. And when you are in pain, it's actually quite hard to communicate that, you know. So that's, that's yeah. what I the kind of dark humor in the book I think comes from is just her trying to articulate this thing that is very, very hard to articulate and particularly under her circumstances. And then, yeah, being a woman, you know, I just think that already it's like, you know, she's, she's that, that alone undermines her, whatever she's going to say. So she's mm -hmm. being hampered by pain and she's being hampered by just, you know, being in her body and, and trying to articulate her experience. I wondered, there were times in the book where I started to wonder, maybe she didn't really fall off the stage. Maybe that is a metaphor for falling off the stage as in no longer being a performer. Mm. Like, not necessarily getting fired, but maybe not getting more gigs or acting opportunities. And did you purposely like create this tension? So as a reader, like, was she in pain? Is this real? Is she making it up? Well, I think that's the thing with pain is that it's yeah. just you experiencing it. It's just mm -hmm. your reality. So yeah. as somebody who's interested in horror, <laughs> you know, that is kind of the whole like fundamental totally. horror. Is it it's all in your head or it really happened? Which one is it? Mm -hmm. Well, horror likes to dance between the two, so you're never quite sure. And that's what makes it horrifying. And yeah. and, and so pain really does put you in that situation because you are alone in your experience and there's nobody who can really fully validate it for you and say, Oh yes, I'm experiencing this too. Exactly like this. It's only yeah. you. So <laughs> that's a really horrifying when you think about it, that's actually a very horrifying um, experience. And it is, it's very surreal, you know, um, because it's just you and, and you can't help but second guess yourself, especially yep. when you can't, art, you can't articulate it quite right. 
Like you'll never capture pain in words. You can only approximate. And so, mm-hmm. so that alone makes it feel like you're, 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 you, you know, oh, am I, am I faking it? Did I uh, represent that accurately? I probably didn't, you know, but that's the best I have. And is this person going to believe me? Are they going to help me? Or are they just, you know, are they not? It's all in their hands. So it's a really, I think it's a very powerless position, regardless of the kind of pain that it is. Um, it's very isolating and, um, yeah. And yeah. depressing and yeah. But it can be funny too. <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, that's how we, we deal with things that are difficult is yeah, exactly. we laugh about them and we make jokes yeah. about them and that humanizes us. I think. I think so too. Was writing. Yeah. yeah. Was writing this book cathartic for you? Yeah, it really was. You know, um, I've talked about this before, but it's, it's, it is, it's something that with that I tend to do when I when I write a story. I usually am inspired to write um, when I either experience or observe like um, a moment of like really profound powerlessness. And then there's something about um, creativity, fiction making for me that gives me a kind of agency and a sense of excitement and a sense of being alive and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, to actually go right into that powerlessness and try to give it expression in the realm of fiction. Um, it would never work to do it in memoir for me. Um, but in fiction, I can tell the truth, you know, and, and in a way that I just can't in other forms. So, so yeah, I think so. I think it was extremely cathartic. And, and you know, it was just, it was such a, it wasn't just uh, my experience. It was seeing people like me, you know, or, or you know, it, it, worse off, you know, in the same um, waiting rooms and, and in the same, you know, physical yeah. therapy gyms and stuff, you know, just like feeling, I think, things that I was feeling scared and just, you know, uncertain and frustrated and angry and all of these Yeah, things, yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, and you know, the, the thing about is it your back or your hip, you know, and it's both, you know, just like this exasperation, like, oh my God. One of the things I think I loved, and by the way, I've had chronic pain and I do suffer from hip and back pain. Oh, wow. Um, so I totally related to Miranda yeah. as I was reading it, you know, and it's been sort of a journey from when I was in my, when I turned 30, actually, the day I rolled, rolled out of bed on my 30th birthday, I suddenly had total back pain and I couldn't oh. identify where it was coming from. And I was to all these doctors and ac- acupuncturists and all of it. What yeah. I loved was how the names you gave these physical therapists. So we've got Broface Mark, yeah. Todd. Talk to us about your naming conventions for these physical therapists, these doctors. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's terrible of uh, of me in a way. They are, they're, they're no, so many, there are so many physical therapists that are great and have different kinds of names. And it's not just like these like monosyllabic like men with crew cuts. But, you know, they, it, it is in my nightmares. Um, and so I'm sure. Not, yeah, so why not do it? Um, and yeah, I mean, I wanted to give them like some kind of like biblical cred you know and so yeah so so i had very matthew uh, mark yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. there's some magical thinking going on there when at least for me anyway when i was in pain and there's definitely like a a sense of Mm. of being um subordinate you know like for sure and and that this person has 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 a power that feels it really does feel magical and there's also something moral about it too like you're the bad, mm. you're the good one. Um, 
And, you know, you've hmm. got to be good. You've got to be a good patient, you know, and if you're a good patient, then you'll get better. And if you're not mm. a good patient, you question, you don't have faith. It's, it's, there's also faith in there, too. Then, well, you know, that's that's why you're you're floundering. That's why, you know, you're still in pain mm. good, and you didn't have faith and you didn't believe. And there's all yeah. of that, I think, wrapped up in the way that. Um, at least I think from the conversations I overheard from the conversations I had too, um, that's all wrapped up in the dialogue between, I think a therapist and a patient, there's something, there's Mm -hmm. something very insidiously religious about it, about like, you need to have faith in, you know, in, in me and in your ability to recover and all this stuff. Well, what if you don't, what if, you know, it was a really hard day and you don't feel like you're getting better and you can't ask questions about that. That's like, you know, suddenly you're a bad patient if you ask questions. It's just, it's, yeah, there's something to that that I thought was really c- mm. kind of more awful, you know, and I really wanted to tap into it to make it more, you know, to really just lean into the horror of it, for sure. Yeah. Well, and that idea that you're not doing it right, you're not getting better, it's your fault. It's not that my exercises aren't, you know, good. <laughs> it's not it's that, that you didn't do them right or enough. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So I, I read Bunny as well, which I love. And oh. in both of these books, our heroine um, has just a small fling with a Scottish man. So yeah. I have to ask you, where does this come from? Where, where's the Scottish man from in your life? <laughs> well, um, I guess in, um, in, in All's Well, um, you know, it comes from uh, the engagement with Macbeth, of course, um and uh Mm -hmm. the man um that that um that we're talking about the the hot bartender guy he is he is i always imagined him to play kind of two roles he's 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 kind of the porter in Macbeth for Mm -hmm. this book Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. and um and he's also he's he's embodying um the three men but it's sort of it's sort of her i think choosing like she's she's going into that world now. We're watching her. She's she's got all's well that ends well on stage, and she gets to have that because, you know, yeah, she that's what she gets because she wanted that so badly. Um, but off stage, she is living Macbeth, and that moment right. of uh, of meeting the 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 Scotsman is is really part of her kind of walking definitively through that door into the world of Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's even a tattoo on his arm. That's like a line from the, from the porter in Macbeth. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many lines that you throw in there that you're, you're giving us all of these clues. And I'll be honest, I didn't realize it until I met the witches. Oh, yeah. and then I was like, Oh, I see what's happening, you know, and the crows and like, there's so many, the sonnets and the, you know, the pieces of soliloquies that appear just in the language and the dialogue in the book is so brilliant. I had to ask, I have to ask rather, how much research did you do on these two plays to bring this together so beautifully? Um, well, first of all, thank you uh, so much. Uh, it was, it was it was fun, but in the end, but it was very, very scary mm-hmm. at first. Um, mm. in, in a sense, though, I have to say, um, I always saw um, a parallel between All's Well and Macbeth. So, so in, in All's Well That Ends Well, 
Helen, the main character, um, she she does something very similar to Macbeth in the in the grander scheme, which is that she is powerless, has a desire that is un, unfulfillable at the start of the play, and then she mm. circumnavigates uh, the natural order of things in order to get what she wants. And in order to get what she wants, um, she heals a king, right? She heals a king and gets what she wants. In in Macbeth, um, Macbeth also has a desire that, you know, um, is is unfulfilled at the start of the play. Um, He kills a king in order to to make it manifest. Um, You know, he also circumnavigates the, the natural order of things in order to do that. So, um, so yeah, I always thought ultimately it's the same trajectory. It's just that one goes down the road of comedy and there's a weird, you know, kind of marriage at the end of it, you know, like this very disturbing fairy tale, happy ending. And then the other one goes down (laughs) down the road of like profound, violent tragedy. So I thought how perfect it's ultimately it's the same journey. It's just, there's a fork in the path and one goes down comedy and one goes down tragedy. So I just have to be aware of that. And um, mm. so the stage is where the happy um, ending is. And yeah. the, the, the um, you know, the, the tragedy is, is offstage. It's in the world that Miranda is living. That's the world of Macbeth. It's that world. So I knew that dividing kind of line. Right. Uh, and then I kind of had to bring them together at the end. And that was the tricky part was kind of... Mm them together because I wanted a little bit of Macbeth and I also wanted um, a, a little, little bit of, of well of course right yeah yeah um, so but it I was would, fun <laughs> it was fun did you did you have like a Shakespearean expert like read it to like make sure you got things right or did you feel pretty confident that like okay I got it um you know one of my closest friends is a is a theater studies professor um and uh she uh, loves Shakespeare and is, you know, just brilliant. Um, and uh, I did give it to her to read. Um, and, and, you know, obviously it was really interested in her thoughts. I mean, she, I, I dedicated Bunny to her. I mean, she's always, she's been my reader since I was, you know, like 20 years old or something. Um, but she, uh, she was really helpful. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, and, uh, but other than that, I think what I did was I just kind of, I tried to tap into like Shakespeare, who just is really yeah and kind of taking other stories and putting them together and and mashing them up and and you know I could try to take inspiration from that um, mm-hmm. from his own process of kind of weaving stories together which he's always done you know um, and so in that way it kind of felt like okay yeah this actually this could work you know this really could and, and um, <laughs> I've just got to try to have fun that's what I told myself just try to have fun and don't get too, don't get into your head. Don't read a lot of, criticism. Mm. you know, just mm-hmm. really pay attention to the plays and then try to see productions and see how they're, how they're handling it. And seeing productions, is so much fun, you know? So well, it's so well done. You it's, it's so well done. <laughs> how long did it take you to write? Um, I think it took two years. Yeah, it was two okay. years. It was fast. I mean, I, I, I've, I've said this before, but I, uh, I wrote the first draft of it in like a handful of weeks in La Jolla, actually. Mm. Uh, and uh, I came in, I think, with some pages and then I just, you know, just 
went all the way like with this with this first draft which is what I like to nice. do I love to write that way um mm. and then and then I went in and I just kind of layered it and you know and just worked on it and revised for for months after that but I had the story I, I like to kind of not second guess the at least the first draft you know mm-hmm. and just kind of get it all down so so yeah it was La Jolla was a big um inspiration for that just being by the water and lovely that's cool not, it's not new england but it's still it's by the sea and there's something there's something like kind of creepy about it which i love about it really it's yeah <laughs> well yeah. this um i know that your next book is sort of inspired by la jolla so yeah looking forward to that yeah. i want to hear more about your writing process are you a can you write anywhere like tell us about a typical day of writing for you um, a typical day, if I'm generating, um, usually will uh, start in the morning and then I'll just go for as long as I can. Um, so it'll be, you know, it could be three hours, it could be five hours, it could be seven hours if I'm really, really lucky and ha- have that time um, to, to give to it. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'll usually stop for the day. Um, but if I'm really on a roll and I'm really in the world of it and I know what the next scene is going to be, I might keep going. Wow. I've definitely had days where I could keep going, but I have to, I have to be, it has to be one of those like, you know, moments where you just, you kind of really know the story at that point. Right. And you know what Mm -hmm. you're next. That's that's, uh, that, that can be really, um, those, those days are kind of few and far between. So, (laughs) well, are you, are you one of those people who plots all the, you know, the plot points out or do you just follow the, the pen and the characters and see where they take you? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, when, whenever I've done that, sort of just follow the characters, it, it ends up rewarding the story in ways that I just didn't anticipate. It's wonderful for me. Mm. So I, I do like to do it um, and, I, and I do it. But I, I like to have at least some sense of the bones just a little bit before I before I go in, especially for something like this, where I was working with two plays and I, I did want to kind of follow the arc of the plays. Um, so I felt like I needed I needed it to have some kind of structure, although with this book in particular, I was very lucky because I had the academic year as a spine. I had the theater production schedule as a spine. Right. It starts off with like. Mm. Like, you know, the yeah. start of rehearsals and then we go to opening night. So I knew it was going to end on opening night. Um, and that's not <laughs> well. um, and, uh, and so, yeah. yeah that so doesn't give it away. <laughs> give it away. But, but those things really helped. I mean, so much in terms of just having perfection. Mm. In a lot of ways, the, the process for this book, I thought it was going to, because I was so intimidated by working with Shakespeare and working with two plays. But it, it turned out to be more organic than, than I um then I, I, you know, I, I had anticipated for sure. How long was the kernel of the idea in your mind to the day that you like sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write this book. Um, how long was the kernel of the idea there? I, you know, I think for a long time, I, I started with all's well that ends well. Like I had this idea mm-hmm. that, oh, I got to write a story about a theater director who's just obsessed with all's well that ends well you know, and has a really particular idea of how Helen should be played. Um, and, uh, and that's going to be so fun. And one day I'll write that, you know, 
Um, but then when the pain narrative started coming in and when I started seeing Macbeth um, mm. as, as another play to bring into it, that's when things got really exciting. And I think that took a long time, like maybe about a year before mm. I put those two things together. You know, I had it in my head, the all's well theater director. But yeah. it, was, it was the pain and Macbeth bringing those two. And that's what that's what made it into a novel, I think that I wanted to write that. Excited. Yeah. Yeah. That is the magic of it. You know, the, the, the pain is so visceral. You can really feel it. And it relates so much to Shakespeare too, and how he creates these characters that they're, they're filled with so much, you know, it's so much emotion, so much pain. Um, it just, it was beautiful. It's so interesting looking back on it now. I mean, I, I wasn't really thinking about my, um, my, my, uh, my struggles with pain when I first came up with the idea, but why did I attach to all's well? I think part of the reason must have been because one of the central characters in the play is crippled with, uh, with mm -hmm. gets healed miraculously. Um, so, you know, <laughs> there's like a miraculous healing in this one play. And, and so, uh, so that, yeah, that's really, that's very, very interesting. Um, and beautiful. Like, I just love the idea that, that in this world that he created, somebody is healed, you know, and they run around right. and right. dance suddenly. And, you know, I mean, how amazing is that? I really tapped into that weird, giddy, like joy that the king has after, after he mm -hmm. recovers. Use that for Miranda, um, for sure. Like the, that kind of strange magical giddiness. Well, and that's sort of where the David Lynch piece comes in. You know, like you, you really the cinematic descriptions of the bar of the um, yeah. uh, the Canny Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And yeah. which talk to us about the Canny Man and the title of the bar. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. It comes from uh, a few different places, the bar, um, but uh, definitely was named after um, Candyman, which is a bar in Edinburgh. Um, I, I did mm. live in Edinburgh for a year. I did um, okay. did a master's there um, in, in, uh, in English, and uh, it was one of my favorite bars. I think it's a little satanic. <laughs> I just don't, don't there's nothing about <laughs> it really is. There's just something about the patrons, and there's just something about, I don't know the atmosphere. It just is so strange to me. There's just something strange about it. Um, <laughs> something off, but it's but it's beautiful. Yeah. It's so it's such a beautiful bar, um, and and I loved it. And um, and it's kind of like a long walk, you know. Like it's one of those. See, it's like a journey to get there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so definitely drew from that. But also in Denver, there was a bar I just I loved so much. Um, it was called uh, the Snug. Um, it's it's a it's a great place, but it's really open, and it's I was thinking it spatially, that bar, um, and this other bar in Salem, um, which is kind of similar. Like they're so open, they almost feel like they're theaters. Mm. Those definitely inspired just the way that the that the Candyman works in All's Well, because I really like the idea that when she gets there. And she's, you know, finished with work and she's so pissed about the students and she's so like done. Suddenly this other play in this, in this, in this, in her regular life is, is opening up right around her. The bar becomes a stage, like the world of the place. Yeah. That was, I knew that, that, that switch suddenly happens. And that was very exciting. 
definitely mm. inspired by by snug and by um this it, it's not it's not the best bar in salem by far it's called Rockefeller. <laughs> really, it's not. It's not. It's not the best bar, but it's beautiful. Like it's so mm. inside, um, and really kind of gothic, and definitely, definitely inspired uh, the Candyman. For sure. Very cool. Yeah. Talk to us about Ellie and who Ellie represents in this book. Uh, yeah, Ellie is kind of uh, you know she is Helen um in the book so this is miranda's student uh that she uh has this strange affection for um and she's kind of a ellie's kind of an outsider you know um and she wants ellie desperately to play helen but of course ellie can't play helen because miranda's nemesis student <laughs> Brianna, um, gets to play all the lead uh, acting roles and uh, Miranda hates Brianna and Brianna hates Miranda. It's totally mutual. And um, <laughs> Miranda wants Ellie to, to, you know, be able to play Helen. That's her secret wish. Um, and I think Ellie, yeah, she's kind of like, a, she's a little witchy, you know, in, in my mind, she's really the Helen of the novel. You know, mm, mm-hmm. the way that Helen is often portrayed on stage um, in Shakespeare, she's like this pale, mousy, kind of like unassuming girl, but she's got this fiery core inside of her that she like shows to mm-hmm. the audience only, you know? Right, um, right. And so, and, and I really, and then she's got this really strange rapport with older people, <clears throat> like Helen. She's mm. got a rapport with the countess and then she's got a rapport with the king. They they can see the 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 strange like you know beauty of Helen I guess they're tender towards Helen so I like the idea that this teacher is like has this tenderness for Ellie you know um, but that yeah. none of her, none of her peers can see it but but Miranda yeah. Miranda can so I really love the idea of having like an and she's witchy Ellie is witchy I mean we don't really know where. Really? The, yeah. Some of the magic in the book is is coming from, and it, it you know the way that it's written, it, it could be her. We don't know. Well, and I like how you kind of leave it open ended. Like you sort of leave some questions as to you know who Ellie represents to Miranda, right? Um, you know, and I won't say any more because mm-hmm. dear listeners and viewers, you're just gonna have to get the book and you're gonna have to read it. It's so good. So before we bring Julie back on, I have one last question. Sure. What, why, what is your thing with Garamond font? Do you have something against Garamond? (laughs) Tell us more. (laughs) Um, I actually love um, Garamond font and I write in it. Um, So I guess I'm kind of making, making fun of myself. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I, I guess it just, it's something that sort of just gives expression to Brianna because that she writes in, in Garamond font and submits in Garamond. Book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It yeah. just expression to like teacher frustration with like a student, you know, that they write in this particular font. Mm-hmm. Have to deal with it, but I write. In it, so. I, <laughs> I love that because it really did like. I could sense like the teacher being so frustrated with the way students do things. And yet I think Garamond is a, such a fabulous font. And I was like, what's wrong with Garamond? No, <laughs> I'm glad to know you love it. Well, thank you so much. Um, this book is so wonderful. It's so good. My, I, my kitties, I have new kitties and they've been eating it. So you can see the edges 
of my book, <laughs> little cat marks, but it doesn't hurt the cover at all. It's so good. And I love this cover. So this was the Canadian cover, huh? Yes. Yep. It was the Canadian cover. So now it, now it is the soft cover. Um, well, it's beautiful. Thank you so much. Do you have the hard cover to hold up for people? I think you were reading from it. Yes. Do I? I don't have it with me right here. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Well, people can look it up and they can see the difference between the two covers, yeah. but it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Is yours black? Mine's blue. No, it's, it's blue too. This is just a, um, this is a, actually a, the Canadian one. So I think the color is a little different. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful experience getting to, to speak with you. You're such a lovely writer and I look forward to your next book. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you for the questions. It was, it was great. Love talking to you as well. <laughs> okay. I've got some like really funny questions coming in from Facebook. Okay. It's really okay. good. Oh, good, good. Sometimes what happens with Facebook is that the, they're, they're commenting and they're, the questions are coming in while you were all were talking about other things, which I love. The one was um, Amanda's talking about agreeing that La Jolla does have a spooky side. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I think we might hear a little bit more of that in the next book. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. a little bit more of that. Uh, but to your book, Jennifer, with the cats, um, quote, this is a real page turned. She devoured it, says Jennifer's cats. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Whoever that is. Thank you. But some <laughs> real questions with that. Okay. So first off, um, Mona, is Miranda named after the heroine from The Tempest? And if so, are there any Tempest Easter eggs in the book? Hmm. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, I, yes, he is for sure. Um, I, I like the idea. It, it, it says something about how she sees herself, I think, at the school. You know, she's like kind of an innocent and she's, you know, having to be um, manipulated, you know, and controlled by this, this other force, you know. And so I really like that idea that she sees herself as a, as a, as a Miranda. So I gave her the name Miranda. Why not? Um, and then uh, in terms of Easter eggs, yeah, her boss, uh, the Dean um, says to Miranda that he played Caliban, you know, when he did some theater and Caliban, of course, is the, the monster in the Tempest. So mm. I really like the idea that, you know, they have this kind of like, offstage sort of strange dynamic between the two of them and that's that's informed by the fact that you know he he was her monster you know in the play so yeah for sure that's very that's cool easter egg there i love it i yeah. love the easter eggs they're so i mean it's just like and and usually it's like i read so fast that a lot of times i miss them and yeah. then i love finding out about them after it's like oh yeah huh <laughs> that's right that was there um, okay, another one is, do you have any favorite Shakespeare adaptations on film? On mm. film? Yes, I do. Um, so uh, one that I always mention, um, it's television, but it's, I, I think it still counts. Um, it's uh, Slings and Arrows, which is a Canadian TV show. Um, mm. uh, came out, I think, in like 2000, 2000-ish. Yeah. Um, and it's so funny and so moving, and so brilliant. Um, it's uh, set in Ontario, Canada. It's based on the Stratford Festival that that Canada actually has out there. That's their big Shakespeare festival. Uh, other other plays too and musicals. And there's three seasons, 
And uh, each season, you know, they focus on a different Shakespeare play. So the first one is Hamlet, the second one is Macbeth, and the third one's King Lear. And what I love about it is that, of course, the play bleeds out, you know, into the real life of like these actors off stage and all kinds of shenanigans happen and it's funny and it's just it's so well written and the people who wrote it are clearly actors who love Shakespeare and who just love comedy um so I I just I yeah I, I that show is like one of my favorite shows is it stream on anything in the U.S. do you know you can watch it on Acorn and um for anybody who likes like Mozart in the jungle like on stage off stage like shows about that kind of life the the life for, for actors and performers would love it, uh, would totally love it. So mm -hmm. highly recommend it. And then the other is, um, I forget who the name of the director is, but it's a, it's a Macbeth um, with uh, Patrick Stewart. Ooh, uh, oh, yeah. And Kate Fleetwood um, as Lady Macbeth. And it's incredible. And the witches in it are so terrifying. They're nurses. Um, and it's just, it's, it is, it is terrifying. And it's the best Lady Macbeth I've ever seen. The, the best um, performance of Lady Macbeth. Patrick Stewart. Pa Patrick Stewart. Rupert Gould. Yes. Rupert Gould. That's it. Yes. And he is Macbeth and he's wonderful, but he is a little, he's, 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 he's a little old for Macbeth. It's the Kate Fleetwood performance that really blew me away. I loved it so much. Mm. So good. Super creepy. Yeah. Ooh, I yeah. gotta go look for that one. Yeah, Always really looking good. for something good to watch on that. Yeah. <laughs> Have you... Did you see Titus with Anthony Hopkins? No, I haven't. Is it good? I bet you it's so good. good. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's creepy, but it's got that awesome, just the feeling. And I forget who directed that one too, but that's a good one. Really good. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's lots of good adaptations out there, I think. And there's some really bad ones too, though. There are some really <laughs> Well, isn't that true? <laughs> there's, some really, there's some real stinkers out there. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, this Mona, it was so great seeing you again. We need to like have like a weekly, like a monthly Zoom catch up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so good. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Warwicks. Thank you, everyone. So honored. Yeah. And thank you. All's well. Paperback. Get it anywhere. But if you if you're so inclined, go ahead and click the link on our page and get it from us too. So absolutely. All right, so Jennifer, thank you. Mona, we'll hope to see you maybe next year. Definitely. All right. And maybe in person. Bye. Maybe we need to like, hopefully we can get you in that. person. Um, and we'll be in a that world awesome. where lots where events are happening and they're and they're yeah. in person again. But we love this. We'll get yeah. we'll take you any way we can. Okay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Hey folks, this is Jennifer, and as you know, The Premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers' Festival, which, by the way, is happening this October, October 8th, in fact, 2022. It's going to Live be, and in person. Yeah, live and in person. I'm really, really excited. We, um, we have so many exciting things happening, so many exciting speakers. They're coming in from all over, and we want you to be there. So Coronado Public Library, the fourth annual San Diego Writers Festival. San Diego Writers Festival com. You can subscribe to learn more about our programming and get on the list to win free books and all kinds of cool stuff happening. So San Diego Writers Festival dot com. Dot com. <laughs>